Bum, 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 Sound. Tony Duchesne here. Welcome to episode 132 of Drinks with Tony with my guest, Jordan A. Rothecker, the author of The Death of the Cyborg Oracle. Ah, spring is in the air, which means it's baseball season and vaccine season. And as a San Franciscan living in Los Angeles, I used to care so much about the Giants beating the Dodgers in any way possible. But now that we've been hit with like this eternal reset of sorts, what are our priorities? I'm not so sure I give as much of a crap about who wins. Maybe I will as the baseball season moves forward. And, and it's just my identity of sorts. It's just because my Norwegian grandparents dropped anchor in San Francisco with my mom. And my dad's great-grandparents got their lazy Sicilian asses out of Italy and boated it to New York and ended up in San Francisco. And then, oh, oh God, I can't think about it. Uh, so when my mom and dad met, they, you know, when they met each other, you know, that thing, that thing you never, ever, ever want to think about your parents ever doing. Well, they had to have it, they had to do it in order for you to be born. And then it's like, it's like you pray to Allah, you pray to God, you pray to Satan, you pray that they only did it that one time just to have you because what am I getting at here? The only reason I'm a San Franciscan is because my parents did... Then I was born and just happened to live in the suburb, a suburb of San Francisco. And so later in life, I had to hate the Dodgers because of it. Wait, how did I get here? Okay, we started with spring is in the air. And then I'm talking about my parents doing nasty, nasty, perverted things to each other. And then it was about the Giants and Dodgers rivalry, which, by the way, started in New York. There, there's a whole book about how it started in the 1800s. And, oh, what was the name of that book? Damn it. What was the title? Um, and, and with that in mind, I guess the Brooklyn Bums and the New York Giants had their identities torn from them when both teams headed to the West Coast in the 1980s. Speaking of spring in the air. This is Jordan A. Rothstacker, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. And I'm happy to be here. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Jordan A. Rothacker. He's the author of The Death of the Cyborg Oracle. Jordan, how are you? Great. Doing well today. Thanks, Tony. I'm really happy to be on the show. Yeah. So what is the cure for glaucoma? <laughs> well, as you said on last episode that we might talk about that, um, I did my research and I'm pretty sure it's marijuana. Marijuana. I love that. It just, I, I, you said, you said that you said you have the cure for glaucoma. And I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> then I remembered it was the end of last episode when I said what we're going to talk about this week in my, <laughs> in my goofy, jokey mm-hmm. way. So yeah. thanks for continuing the joke. Yeah. I prepare. <laughs> yeah, that's great oh my god and thank you so before before we started recording god I, you took me on a tour of your library and it's gorgeous thank you thank you yeah i'm just it was uh we, we moved into this house and and there's this 
extra room that would be, you know, our library slash my office. And I like to say my office is in a small corner of our library because my wife had a whole lot of books when we met and she buys books almost as, as obsessively as I do. And, um, and so to, to get built-ins for, for 22 feet walls on both sides was extremely expensive process. Like the first quote was $17,000. I got someone finally, I found someone who would do it for like 10 to 12. And then I just, I just couldn't handle that. And I went to, uh, I looked online at Target and they had these good looking shelves that were like $70 a piece. And I went to um, a local, like a Target one town over that had them on sale for $30 because uh-huh. it was about to be discontinued. And so I, uh, I was like, that's it. And so I bought the four they had and I needed total um, 16 of them. And since it was about to be discontinued, they were, you know, around Northern Georgia. I live in Athens. And so I, I borrowed a pickup truck and drove around to every Target on the North side of the state of Georgia and wound and bought all 16 of these. And it cost about, you know, the process, I hired a carpenter friend of mine to help me, you know, put them together and lash it against the walls safely. Um, it was about, I think, $500, $600 total for the whole whole process. Um, and, it, and it felt pretty good to do it. But I mean, it felt also really good to get about, you know, almost 4,000 books out of their boxes and up on the shelves. A true writer and a true fan of writing. Yes. <laughs> it's kind of like how we come to this, isn't it? It's, uh, yeah. it's, I, we, we can't be a writer without being totally obsessed with our heroes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and then, and my heroes have been obsessed with their heroes. And so that's always what got me reading new stuff and different stuff that, you know, I'd fall in love with a writer. Like when I was 17, I was like extremely enamored with James Joyce. And I was like a member of the international James Joyce foundation at 17. And I would read, you know, I, would, I, I found a book in a library that was literally a catalog of, of, of every book, you know, we knew of that he'd read. And so I got into, you know, of course, you know, Bruno and Vico, you know, through that. Um, but the, the kind of reading interviews of living writers and see who influenced them got yeah. me reading other people. And, and so even though I've got, you know, a bunch of academic degrees, there's, there's a part of me that still thinks of myself as an autodidact because that's always what I've done is, is hunt out, you know, who do the people I like, like, and then I found other people and who did they like? And then it's just this kind of, you know, going backwards, like, like Borges says, you know, like, you know, we, we make our own connections with each generation, you know, across, you know, these influences. I, I'm, that's the best way to do it. I remember when I was young, you know, when I, I'm still young, come on. But when I was younger, um, mm-hmm. I, and I remember, uh, you know, I remember it's just like, you go, oh, okay, oh, that's Bukowski. And then and then he'd be like, oh, this writer, John Fontaine. I'd be like, who the hell is that? And then yeah. I'd go straight to that. And mm-hmm. then uh, Kerouac would talk about Louis Ferdinand Celine. And I'm like, yeah. who is that? And I would read him. And something got me back to Newt Hampson, Hunger. Oh, yeah. You know, and it's just mm-hmm. like, you could just keep going back. And the, the beauty of it, what blows my mind is a book like, you know, a book like from the 1800s mm-hmm. can sound contemporary just because yeah. the human condition's the same. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't and, and, even through, and even despite like translation, 
Um, I mean, one of my, you know, so you know my connection to, to Volman, you know, so one of my, you know, early interviews I read with him, you know, there was some, you know, some interviewer asked him in like the 90s, like, who are your favorite writers? And, and that day they asked him, he said, Hawthorne and Plutarch, you know, and I, I'd already been reading both of them, but that kind of connection just made so much sense and was so important to me that, yeah, Hawthorne's amazing. Plutarch's amazing. You know, his, his lives of these people is beautiful prose, you know, and, and like I could pick at the Latin, I can, I can look at the Latin and I could get it, but also just, you know, find a good translation. And, and then who's Plutarch reading, you know, I mean, exactly. Yeah. He's, he's reading all the, all the same stuff. Some are gone, but he's reading, you know, he's reading Homer, he's reading everyone else. You know, I remember my, my first book I read by Volman was uh, Whores for Gloria. Yeah. That's I was like, this dude's awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, then, and then I read, um, I remember reading the Royal family and just getting a huge, just loving it to death. I, not, I think I, I think I got such a, you know, this was before I was like just diving deeply into my own writing. I think yeah. I got a huge kick out of just how big the book was. I would take yeah. it to coffee shops and I would just be like, everyone around just knows I'm intellectual if I have oh, this yeah. book out. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's no slimming that. I mean, of course, like Viking could publish like, when I read War and Peace, I read it in like a mass market paperback that fit in my backpack when I went backpacking through Europe. And so they could make a version like that, <laughs> that yeah. would be a little less cumbersome, a little easier in the hand. But, you know, you've got those big fat, you know, Europe, you know, royal families there. Yeah, yeah. And I, it drives me nuts. You know, I, I like, you know, mass market paperbacks good for travel. But like for War and Peace or something like that, I, I just, I need the bigger book. I, I don't want to sit there and like, read it like it's scripture you know mm-hmm. well i often read in bed a lot and like that mm-hmm. whole thing of you know holding the book above your face and you fall asleep and, and a big book kind of hurts more when it falls yeah. on your face yeah um the little book is a little you know easier for walking around and and that actually becomes one of my my small like qualms with volman is that they're they're big and they're they're harder to read in in different situations like physically harder to read in situations and he actually uh, he's um he'll take he'll negotiate uh, you you'll know more of this because you're closer to volman than um than i you know i i just interviewed him a couple times and i've heard things but he um he takes uh what do you call it he'll he'll negotiate a lower advance to keep mm-hmm. the page count high yeah and it's just I thought that was always just like so cool. It's just like he's like, no, it's actually got to be nine hundred and fifty mm-hmm. pages. But you know what? We'll take off my advance, and then we'll just make mm-hmm. it all work. Yeah, I mean, I mean, he admitted during those kind of times because he would he'd mentioned that more around royal family because mm-hmm. they wanted to cut out some of those episodes, and and around that time he was doing far more magazine work too, and he would always say he made more money for a couple magazine articles than maybe he would make for an advance on a on a book, and I've never had a I've never had a book published by a major press, so I don't know what like an advance looks like. I've actually only had one advance uh, of my five books, all from small presses. Only one has been an advance so far, and it was a it was a very nice. It was a it was an advance of appreciation, you know, like yeah, yeah. Um, it, was, it was a nice token to say, you know, we we appreciate you. And the small press world is less on advance, more on back end, bigger royalties. So if a book sells, you do well. If it doesn't that's you know how it goes but uh um you know i I, i've made more money from writing for other people than i have for literary fiction you know isn't it weird i'd say i'm i'm doing i'm I'm, i've been ghostwriting here and there and i'm doing i'm ghostwriting a book right now 
it's always more money. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. it's just like, oh yeah, it's, it's wrong. It should be flipped around. I mean, one of my day jobs is as a copywriter, you know, and mm-hmm. as a copywriter, I'm getting $75 an hour for writing, yeah. you know, um, ad copy, branding, naming a business or a building and writing taglines and headlines and brand books and stuff like that. And, and it's actually, I mean, it's still creative writing and I, and I, I enjoy it, um, but it's certainly lucrative. And, and I think of it, it's, it's kind of the perfect day job because it's practice. All writing is practice, you know, yeah. like, and it's, it's practice in a, in a really fun niche way because someone says, these are the parameters. This is the theme, right? This and this theme. And you're like, cool. Which is the same thing as writing a character. Once I create a character, they, they're the theme. They're the brand within that book. This is what they would say. This is what they would think. And so um, copywriting is just also, all, all writing is practice. When you're writing a character, how do you get to that point where you know, like at what point do you know how they think and what they would say? How long does it take to get you there? Um, I'm not really sure the time of the process. There's, there's certainly, um, there's, a, there's maybe amount of words on a page or maybe amount of like time in my head. Like I'm a real thinker, note taker, preparer ahead of time. And it's kind of the thing I, I teach my students just in any kind of writing and that like, Boy Scout motto, be prepared, you know, and, and that fits for all kinds of writing, no matter what you're doing. But the more you know, before you actually sit down to write, the, the better you're going to write is how I feel. And so um, I don't really ever, I've never had writer's block and I don't really stare at a blank page. And I don't mean that in the kind of like a, a boastful ego way. I mean, I, I work on multiple things at once. And so I go back and forth. And if something isn't moving well, I go to another thing. And that kind of lateral thinking, moving back and forth, um, helps the other writing. And mm-hmm. so, uh, quite often, like um, as the, at least main characters in a book um, or even a short story, I kind of get their identity from the beginning. You know, and so so my most recent book, you know, kind of two central main characters. There's the narrator, who's kind of the Dr. Watson understudy to you know uh, Jacob Thinkowitz, Rabinowitz. You know, so. I kind of conceive both characters at once and I got a vision of, of both of them uh, you know, as I conceive the whole book together. And so developing how they would speak and how they would act to things changes as you write a little yeah. bit. And so the characters do develop throughout the process, but that's also just kind of like getting to know somebody. So you, you have an initial impression of who they are and you get to know them better as the text leads you at a certain point, you know, it's, and I don't mean to make it sound like just totally mystical. I mean, there's, it's leading you within the confines you initially create, you know, there's, there's, they develop, but within what I initially create for them. We develop a relationship with them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, and that's the thing is, I mean, so um, my, my new book, whether we talk about it or not, I, I guess yeah. I was, I've been listening to a lot of your podcasts. Um, <laughs> you're, um, like, you're like, where's, <laughs> doesn't he have a book out why are they talking about uh that's fine i'm happy to talk to you um but yes i mean this most recent book like it took a real turn around the middle of my composition where it started hitting me that this could become a series Mm -hmm. and that put a real pressure on me that like this future you know world set in 2220 domed atlanta would um i would have to see the world really well i would have to like really see it and bring that across for the reader, because if I'm gonna do more of these as a series, 
I can't have like a first knockoff book and then be like, and now in the second one, let me actually tell you about this world. So once I realized that I liked the characters, and I liked that world a lot and I, I liked inhabiting it and watch them move around in it. Then I realized that I made, needed to make sure that it was fully developed and I could really fully see around in it so I could take them further, which actually really helped the writing of, of course, this book, the first book, because then I, I saw them even bigger. Um, I mean, I saw the world bigger. I saw the world clearer. Yeah, there, there's no, there's um, there's nothing that beats like too much work on a character or too much work on world building. It's like even if even if there's you know days or months you're working on something and it doesn't quite make it in the book exactly. Oh yeah. But you know it better. Then mm -hmm. all of a sudden it's just it, it's like you can tell you know when you're reading. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I always heard that you know I've I've read a bunch of bios on Faulkner and I always heard that. Um, and so I, I wrote a re essay on process recently involving this book, and, and I, I, I called back to my early readings of Faulkner and about his process in that supposedly any character that appears in a book by Faulkner, he knew the full backstory of, full life of, even if like a bellhop is just there in a hotel and picks up your bags and doesn't have a name, he knew everything about that bellhop. And even if it doesn't show up, even if he doesn't use it, you need to have that knowledge in you or some writers do, he did, I, I need to. And so from my first novel, I mean, we're talking, you know, which what I finished in 2005 and started in 2002, it took me three years to write. I mean, I had full, you know, memo books and dossiers and, and character studies and profiles and, and pages on each chapter, detailed outlining what happens at every time of day in that chapter. And that, that kind of preparedness, once I did that, then I could sit down and I wrote with, a sense of assurance, at least, or confidence. And I could write chapters out of order too, you know, based on research or based even on just on mood and feeling. I could write, you know, later chapters, you know, at one point and earlier chapters. And then, and then you're assembling and you're editing and you're making it whole. And the reader has no idea. The reader's in your process. They just care about the product. They care about what they're reading. They don't know that you wrote it out of order. You know, they don't know that, you know, that one part of it was written a decade earlier. Mm -hmm. So that feeling of knowing at least as much as you can about a character, even if you don't show it, makes you feel secure in presenting them. Um, and so, you know, whether Faulkner really drew maps of how characters walked in every location, that inspired me to do that. I drew floor plans of apartments and, and everywhere characters moved, I drew how they would move. And it was actually at first like a flaw of that book that things seemed too mechanical. And so I was actually pretty lucky that I finished the book at 28 and that novel was actually my second book published. And when it, it was getting published, I was given, you know, at, you know, like a year to do edits. And I let my wife read it first, you know, who is my, my great reader. And she, you know, she was just like, it's just too mechanical. There's just too much detail. I was, I was, I was, it was Faulkner and, and Beckett in my head together with Beckett with his fizzles and left hand picks this out of this pocket and moves this. And she's like, it's, you gotta, you gotta cut that. And when I was younger, I, I probably couldn't have listened to anyone saying that. And I couldn't mm -hmm. have probably done the edits that I needed to do. But the book coming out when I was, you know, 38, I was able to just, just cut, you know, like I cared about length, you know, more when I was younger. And, and then at 38, I'm like, there's over 400 pages here. There's like seven, 175,000 words. And so I just chopped, you know, anything that made me cringe, chop, anything that seemed tedious, chop. And so the book came down to about 170,000 words, you know, maybe a little under 400 pages. And, 
I felt pretty confident of the 38 year old me editing the 28 year old me with much more wisdom and a brilliant wife to, to help me with that. Yeah. It's almost like uh, doing a time capsule of yourself. You know, if you're looking at something you read, something you wrote 10 years ago, which, you know, it, even when, even, uh, you know, it just blows my mind when you write a book, when you start at the beginning, you're a better writer at the end. It just, it, mm-hmm. that just still is so cool to me. Yeah. And then it's mm-hmm. like, you have to go back and go, okay, now that I'm a better writer, I got to change the beginning. <laughs> but, yeah. um, but to go back on something that's 10 years old, there's, there's, it, it's, it's like, it's even better than looking at pictures. It's, it, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's almost more intimate. Mm-hmm. I feel. Yeah. And this, this kind of feeling of that kind of like <clears throat> young, brash, you know, uh, look at me writer of my <laughs> 20s. And, and still, you know, like, you know, for my wife, you know, her, her favorite book is, you know, the first one I published and one I, I wrote while I, I knew her, you know, and, the, and this is a book that I wrote most of before I knew her. And it's also a book from my, my 20s. And so yeah. it's, it's lesser of a favorite for her. But um, part of that was the, the be able to look back, be able to edit my past, be able to be like, kind of shake my head at like young Jordan and be like, no, you know, like it's a book called, you know, and wind will wash away. And so I had this, you know, form function, long, windy, winding sentences, very Faulknerian. And some of them were tedious, you know, some of them didn't have the rhythm they needed to, some of them didn't flow. And, and, you know, and I just chopped, just cutting, you know, and it actually felt really good because at the time when I'm writing, I'm just like, must be big it must be a big novel you know it's it's not going to be quite Volman but it's going to be a substantial novel and it still is I mean it's still 170,000 words is you know it's still the biggest thing I've ever written but um, um, other than like a PhD dissertation but it still feels good to have a, a big you know novel like that. How long is a, PS, uh, a PhD dissertation? Um, mine was about um, it was about two 83 at my defense and I chopped it down a little to maybe 260 pages so uh um oh yeah so I, I mean I, I guess you're right the novel is still longer word count wise but it's still a still a pretty big work it's still yeah a, yeah the second longest yeah. thing I, I've never done anything PhD so I'm just like oh my god you gotta <laughs> you know <laughs> and that's yeah. also got a feeling you know having to say something big you know yeah oh my god yeah no when I'm like when I'm working on stuff the bigger the pile of the pages that I'm printing out and editing, just it, it must be penis envy. I have no idea. You know, I'm probably yeah. working on a lot of internal things, but <laughs> just to be able to drop 300 pages on the table and go, oops, oh yeah, hear all that weight? That was, that's from me. Yeah. <laughs> and no one cares. They're just like, mm-hmm. oh, shut up. <laughs> Back to their own work. Well, there's this, there's this amazing chapter in, uh, in Victor Hugo's uh, um, Notre Dame, um, in Hunchback of Notre Dame, Notre Dame de Paris, uh, where he, it's one chapter where he just describes the whole entire building of Notre Dame and its construction and its history. And then by the end, though, he's, he says, he comes to this conclusion, the narrator, that um, the, you know, the, the book will beat the edifice this will destroy that you know that we you know we used to make these giant edifices you know like a, a pyramid or or notre dame and you know for he as him as a writer what he's thinking of is, is a book will replace this you know a book is someone making their mark on time on history yeah. this is me this is my name this is my work this is my creation and so the idea of, of, a, of a book usurping a building 
you know, it's, it's kind of always been in my head as, you know, books create legacy, you know, like right. hopefully in a hundred years, if we're all still around and people are still reading books, you know, maybe mine will be some of those, you know, that's, that's, that's what we, we hope or, you know, dream of. It's so weird. It is, it is legacy. And it's so, it's like, it's, it's that weird, like for me, it's a weird craving that I want to communicate to people, you know, just it, that, that, and then uh, luckily they might read it, you know, even 10 years from now, or they might even read it after I die. You know, it's just like, yeah. I, I could go on living in someone's head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so cool. It's a real, it's a real, um, you know, ancient world thing, you know, like you look at like <clears throat> the early Israelites or, you know, the ancient Greeks and, you know, what they're thinking of as legacy is not about, they're not thinking of, a, of an afterlife. They're thinking of a legacy here on earth. And that legacy on earth is their name and their deeds and their children and who they begot, you know? And so their children tell the stories of the people who begot them and their name and their deeds. And so your, your legacy is carried on through your name and through your deeds and through your children. And so it's a, it's a, it's a materialist way of looking at things, you know, for me. And, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've got five books so far, you know, like, yeah, hopefully, you know, someone might read them in the future. You know. Yeah. And I, and I love that you showed me your, you have everything William T. Volman has ever written. Uh, I'm pretty sure there, there might be a couple random uh, magazines somewhere that I don't right. have, but uh, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. yeah. Even the, even the, uh, who put, I still, did McSweeney's put the-, McSweeney's, the Yeah, it McSweeney's took a year to, the, to edit and proofread and uh, they yeah. produced a 3,400 page um, treatise on violence, which Volman calls a long essay um, yeah. called Rising Up, Rising Down. Right. Which, um, I'd, I'd read most of after it came out, but then um, he, uh, one of my chapters of my dissertation is, is on Volman. And so- it was a moment where I just kind of had to stop writing and realize that I need to finish that whole book. So I, so I, you know, I don't miss something because people know I know him and I wasn't yet his research assistant, but to be producing an academic work where he is one of my case studies, I had this moment of like pressure, kind of terror and paranoia. I was like, what if, what if I'm missing something? And so I had to stop and actually read the whole entire thing. Um, and I mean, I cited from some of the footnotes in my dissertation from Rising Up, Rising Down. And some of the footnotes are even like really lush. I mean, especially where he's like citing the Unabomber before he even knew that he was a Unabomber suspect. Yeah. Huh. The, um, how did you become a research assistant for him? Um, I, I wrote a, an essay about that for a um, Heavy Feather Review. So it's out there if uh, people want to read that. Um, I mean, ultimately... Um, I was a fan who eventually became a friend because he's a kind guy and responds yeah. to, to letters. He, of course, he does a new email. That's where I came in later on. Um, but he responds to letters. And then um, once and I phone came calls, to, he doesn't have a, yeah. he doesn't have a cell phone. I've had to call him at his house. He's just like, Landline. hello. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, whoa, this feels so 1991. Hey, <laughs> he is not into it. He is. He's off no checking account either. He wow. sends me, he pays me through money orders, you know? Um, wow. But so, yeah, so, I mean, I was a, I was a fan, became a friend when I, when I came to university of Georgia, when I moved here from New York uh, to do a master's in religion, which it was research for my first novel, I moved here to do a master's as research and to be close to Atlanta where the book is set to do fieldwork research because I was, you know, felt that it was needed. Of course I, um, 
I was like, well, I've got a school at my disposal that has funds that I can bring, you know, I can bring writers, I can bring speakers and stuff. So I, I invited him to come speak. I was actually taking a uh, graduate religion seminar on religion and violence. And so uh, um, I, the, the department bought a copy of Rising Up, Rising Down. And um, I invited him to come speak and he responded affirmatively and picked him up at the airport. And and he um, he spoke to a class and then we had a big event. and. And then we, we kept up as friends over the years and he you know gave me advice on writing, but mostly like just personal advice. Like, you know, I'd call him after a breakup, you know, and he'd, he'd, you know, he'd, he'd talk me through things. You know, I'd call him before doing a journalism assignment and he'd give me advice on, you know, how to, how to talk to people. And, um, and then, then eventually, you know, as I say in that, that essay, he, he popped the question. He's like, I'm working on a book, his, his book, Carbon Ideologies. And since he doesn't use the internet at all, um, I mean, I guess he does through me. Uh, since he doesn't use the internet at all, he hired me to, to you know, use the internet for him. Um, but also like email people, contact, you know, scientists, researchers, get him data, you know, whatever he needed, I would find the information of. And we have our own very small internet where I would actually download everything that I would have onto a DVD disc, mail it to him, priority mail, um, if Homeland Security didn't open it up at the post office and it actually got to him, which sometimes it didn't, um, he would, you know, open it up in his airlocked, you know, MacBook Pro, <laughs> and which has never been online, and then have all the direct things I downloaded and my, you know, emails between people. And so we had a very small internet between the two of us. And and he would, you know, you read those things, use that research. And, and then what's, what's funny is he actually included me in the second volume of Carbon Ideologies as a character at a certain point when um, I was emailing with the Department of Energy about some, you know, specific things he was asking about. And, and it was 2017 and Trump was already president and they were telling us that they couldn't answer certain things for us. But they were very nice to say, but you could find us on our website somewhere. And so they would direct us to that, but you couldn't go on record and answer certain things. And so he put that directly into the book of my intrepid research assistant, <laughs> asked this person this, and they said this, and this was, this was the answer. So I, I wound up becoming a character in one of his you know, nonfiction books that way. How did that feel? That's a legacy. Pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, like I, I've, I downloaded the, you know, audible audio book of both of those and, um, you know, kind of went straight to listening to someone else reading about me being a character in a Volman book. Yes. Yeah. Pretty amazing. No, it was crazy. My friend, uh, Gabriel Hart, he's, he's written a couple books and he had a, um, he had a short story in the zine, you know, and I love getting zines. I, it's mm -hmm. like, it's like, if somebody's got a zine and it's not online, I'm oh, buying yeah. it. I don't even, I, mm -hmm. I'm getting it. Cause oh, yeah. keep zines alive. And, yeah, um, so I was like sitting there and I'm like, I'm reading his story. And then all of a sudden he's like, and my author friend, Tony Duchesne, blah, blah. And I'm going, whoa, <laughs> like, dude, I texted him. I was like, you put me in your, your story. And he's all, oh, you saw the Easter egg. <laughs> you're, you're the Easter egg. Yeah. <laughs> or, or the Easter egg was just for me, I guess. Uh, you know, I was just like. I mean, that's what I love about like, um, um, I live about, you know, almost three hours from Asheville, North Carolina, and it's just a town of, of bookstores. It's like a little, it's about twice the size of Athens, Georgia, um, and it's not directly a college town like this town is, but there's maybe, I don't know, seven or eight bookstores on any given day, and there's like a range of them. There's a wonderful leftist bookstore, Firestorm, that has a vegan cafe in it that I've read in before, and um, 
there's a bookstore called Downtown Books. It's a sister bookstore to Malaprops and Malaprops is wonderful. And, and Downtown Books though, being the used books and more of like magazines has a huge zine section. And some of them are from like all over like Cosmic Comics, you know, from Pacific Northwest, but um, they'll just have random zines that, you know, people might sell their consignment. And uh, yeah. that's the kind of stuff I just, I want to pick up, you know, I'll, I'll drop, you know, two, three dollars. I want to have those things. And I want to flip through random writing by total strangers who are doing their own thing, DIY, printing this, stapling it together themselves. Yep. And like, I mean, that's, that's a hope of writing, you know, like they don't care about publishing world. They're publishing themselves and it's beautiful. I remember being a, a temp office worker and the, those were the glory days when you could steal, you could just sit there and just burn through their copy machine. Oh my oh, yeah. God. It was it just it still excites me and then i would and then i would get the you know i'd get like um i don't know what do they call that grade a paper that's like heavier grade for the covers oh, mm-hmm. and then i would like you know sneak in there mm-hmm. run to a big cover run and then you know do the big cuts and everything and staples yeah. it, was, it was glorious it made temp it made temp work that was so um humiliating and <laughs> and, and uh you know all loss of dignity it made me excited to go to work. It's like, why does he have a bounce in his step when he's doing data yeah. entry for eight hours a day? And we're like, yeah, no. That's your bonus. That's where, uh, that's where the extra hourly is coming in. That's where it should be. You're, yeah. you're taking what you deserve there. I mean, I teach, you know, at a, um, you know, um, technical college, a community college here in town and, and it's, it's fine. Um, and I've, uh, but they don't, you don't have your own individual copy code or printing code. And I, I, I do not abuse it. There's no excess, you know, and I print things for my classes. And, and since COVID, you know, which I am teaching face-to-face these days, uh, I, print, I print less. I do more online. I have, you know, the online apparatus where the students are, you know, doing the kind of interface we have. But, uh, yeah, I don't have a printer at home. So I, it's, it's nice to be able to yeah. print things, you know, relatively freely somewhere else on someone else's dime. Yes. Yeah, it's a uh, oh, teaching during COVID. I, you know, I, I enjoy it because I'm getting a lot of people who would never take my classes because they're from all over the you know United States or mm-hmm. even in different countries. But man, it's just so hard not being in a room with people. Just just yeah. like being in that energy, you know. Yeah, I mean, I'm face to face, but it's a very different dynamic. I mean, mm-hmm. what you don't realize is, I mean, I, I taught um, at University of Georgia 49 classes in 11 years, and then finished my my dissertation and just bartended and, and wrote for a while and then kind of jumped back into teaching at a, at a anywhere I could in this, you know, place. And so, you, you know, UGA called me back to teach at the English department. And so I've now taught at three different departments there, um, religion, comparative literature and, and English. Um, but so, I mean, I've had this kind of body of teaching experience, you know, like 3000 students total, you know, and, and over 60 classes. But since COVID, like going face to face starting last fall, you don't realize how much reading someone's face depends on seeing their whole face. And so just reading someone by their brow, by their eyes, and it's not just the fact that you're trying to read them by their brow, but the fact that they have half their face covered, they know they're covered and they feel covered. And so everyone is a little more reserved. They're a little more laid back. They're a little more like um, hidden. And so you know, my, my normal patter and jokes and filler and all the stuff I'm lecturing about, 
I'm used to reactions. I'm used to yeah. seeing on their face the, how they're responding to it, whether they're laughing or they're falling or there's some reaction and they're a little more deadpan than you would ever yeah. expect. And like, and like, I don't, I don't necessarily know what they're thinking anymore, you know? And it's, and also having a mask on makes them less interested in speaking, less interested in actual discussion, you know? Uh, yeah. And so, I mean, especially when it comes to like teaching poetry my intro to literature class, I'm just like, whatever, I'll just lecture because no one wants to, you know, talk about their feelings about poetry anyway. It's a little scary for students. Um, and so I've kind of moved back into lecturing more instead of the more Socratic method that I'm kind of used to. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact that the students, they're just kind of, they're hiding, you know, the mask yeah. makes you feel like you're hidden a little bit, even though they're there, they're, you don't really see much. It's kind of a, it's not like a glazed eye, but it's, and there's occasionally a student who like, you can tell they're smiling by their eyes. You can right. tell they're reacting by their eyes. Maybe they're nodding, you know, and you're just yeah. like, yes, <laughs> they are emoting beyond the mask. <laughs> I'm doing something They're It's they're responding. That stuff feels really good, but you just, you try to try to do your best and convey the material as, as yeah. best as you can. And try to deliver a joke. I mean, when, when I'm doing, when I'm doing the zoom, like, uh, you know, classes, everyone will be on mute. So I'll drop a joke and I won't hear anything. Yeah. I'll be like, oh man, I thought that was funny. But then you see people like kind of like they're, they're laughing, but they're not on. And I was like, oh, I was like, okay, that was funny. All right, cool. Just, you know, I'm like. Well, because they're not wearing masks through Zoom. So you could still see them laugh. I even if see they're on them, yeah. But there's like a second delay, right? I mean. It's weird. Yeah, it's weird. Um, yeah. And it's just, it's uh it, it puts a barrier between us, how, how we yeah. communicate. It's a trip. Yeah. And I, I'm like, glad like this school is doing it well, where like if you have a um, twice a week face-to-face class, you uh, that's over 10 students, you split it in half and each comes on, half the class comes on one day, half comes on the other day and, and you do mm-hmm. the half of the class online. So it becomes a hybrid class and that's, mm-hmm. and that's fine. I mean, it kind of sucks because I'm not a big fan of online teaching. I believe pedagogy happens face-to-face with a board, whether it's a chalkboard or a marker board or a digital board, I don't care. I need to talk to you. I need to put stuff up there. I need to see your reaction. I need to have you ask me questions in the moment, which I respond to in the moment, questions I don't expect. That's where I feel pedagogy actually happens. And so it's a little less than that, but it's it's a once a week class and it's half online. And so I have them doing journals and quizzes online, things like that. Um, But I mean, it's still... It's still good to be in a classroom and, you know, they're all spaced out. They're sitting distant from each other. It's a class of less than 10. I thought they were all high. They, they might be high. I mean, <laughs> they're all uh, spaced out. But they're, they're spaced that was out. My, that was, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I tried. And speaking of, speaking of, I got my first shot a few days ago. Yeah. And uh, my next shot is 420. So I will be, oh yeah. I'll be getting injected drugs on 420. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, my my I, next I, shot is 412. There you go. Yeah. Who knew we'd be so excited about getting yeah. vaccines? Yeah. The irony is the semester ends April 22nd, two days after I get my second shot. So it's it's yeah. not really helping anyone be any safer. And the then semester. and then like and then in summer we'll find out, oops, uh you need a different vaccine. We'll just be like <laughs> again. I don't want to think about that. I mean. From everything yeah. I've read, these should handle the variations and and uh, it just gives me hope. I'm just so yeah. excited. Yeah. I'm meeting friends for coffee now. Outdoor yeah. dining's open in LA. They're even. I'm there's 
they're starting yoga classes inside now at 10%. Yes. And I'm like, I got to get rid of my fat COVID body body that I've created this last year. It, it is time. Mm. And just start signing up. Let, get me in there. Look at, yeah. look at all the damage I've done. <laughs> my, my Ben and Jerry's pint a night COVID body eventually took a turn last August when I had to start teaching face to face. And, and, uh, Sadly, I, I became more of a uh, regular cigarette smoker than an occasional went out cigarette smoker. And um, it, it, side effects <laughs> led to weight loss, balancing of, you know, anxiety, whatnot. But, um, you know, my kids have never seen me smoke anything. You know, I've been, I've been pretty good about that. But um, cigarettes have come back into play from, you know, anxiety of COVID and whatnot. And, uh, it did actually help and lose a bunch of weight. And, uh, and then I just got kind of nuts about like just writing and doing crunches, you know, like I, I got that kind of weird COVID, like I'm locked in anyway, like do crunches, do push-ups, write a bunch, go back and forth between. Uh, but yeah, so, I mean, my, my health COVID levels are, are a mixed bag at this point. So, so the, you know, that's, Cigarettes are all right then. I, if I start smoking, I could drop some weight, and then they'll then I'll get a I'll go to yoga, but I'll have to smoke outside. You know, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. they'll be like they'll be like we're in tree pose, and I'll be like uh, I need a break. Yeah. <laughs> and well, the other good thing is now I'm constantly washing my hands because I feel guilty about smoking and I hate the smell on my hands, and so constantly washing my hands, which is good for COVID. And there's hand sanitizer at the school uh-huh. like yeah, you know. <laughs> what what brand do you smoke? Um. American spirits yellow. I kind of uh, yeah. That. Those those are those are good. Those, yeah. those if you pull out that pack, you like sit there and go, that's that's a guy who's looking out for himself. Yeah. Well, even though he smokes, <laughs> it's so bougie and kind of. I don't want to. I don't want to. No no, no bad sentiment to anybody, but I don't think any Native Americans are involved in the production of American spirits. What you mean? It's just marketing. I, I don't think get it's it. White people from like. <laughs> New Mexico is, yeah. is my guess. Um, yeah. yeah, and there's the fact that there's no additives just means that they burn longer, so it takes a little longer, and that's that's about it. You know. Well, there's no additives in the tobacco, right? Now no. they can do additives in the filter, right? Or is that the case? I don't know. If, do people put additives in filters? I have no idea. I'm no, just, throw, no, I'm just throwing it out there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> starting a nope. rumor. All I know <laughs> is you don't pack them. They they smoke slower. You know, I, I went from being a you know, occasionally I'll smoke when going out for a drink to a, I, I've been smoking like a pack every two days or, th- you know, half kind of, kind of guy, you know. So it, now has that regular smoking only been in this part of your life or did you regularly smoke before? I, I've, I used to smoke um, at different points of my life through maybe more stressors. I, I've, uh, I'm, I'm pretty body in touch. And so, and I'm also like a very sensitive body. So like, cigarettes are like speed for me like nicotine is like 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 speed I, I get all worked up you know I'm like kind of agitated it's, it's controlled anxiety and mm-hmm. for someone who's as OCD as myself it's controlled anxiety it's one of the reasons why I couldn't understand the movie um, Matchstick Man with Dick Nolte for someone as OCD as him he's knocking ashes everywhere that would totally freak me out but um, so it's controlled anxiety and I've been an off and on smoker ridiculously and I hate to mention this since maybe like early teens you know and um but the thing about my body is i've never been addictive 
uh, I'm not an addictive person. I'm a habitual person, like time mm. and day habit. So yeah. I can easily change a habit. I don't, I don't want the thing. I, I'm not like a necessarily physically addicted, but like when I used to, you know, teach at UGA, there were like a class I would have at 10 a.m. And so I, I show up around 9.50 and there's students outside smoking. I'd bum a smoke from them, go and teach a class. And then every Tuesday or Thursday at 9.50, I'm like, I kind of want a cigarette and talk to those kids hanging out and we have a cigarette. And, and so it makes quitting a lot easier because if I go out drinking one night and have more cigarettes than I care to mention, I feel pretty crappy the next day and right. a cigarette for a yeah. long time. And so... Um, I've, you know, I've, I've gotten pretty in touch with my body in those things, but you know, when it comes to COVID these days, it's just whatever works as long as I'm not, you know, smoking in front of my young children and they've never seen me smoke anything. And then we're, we're happy. We're clean. We're fine. I just, you know, I'm washing an ashtray out outside pretty fast, you know, and I'm, I'm cleaning yeah. up myself and, and it's, somehow, Somehow this interview about my newest book has turned into me talking about my smoking. <laughs> See, <laughs> we, didn't get the, we didn't do glaucoma. We, we got the, we got a smoking. Glaucoma. <laughs> no, you know, it's funny. Like, like I'll get a hangover and mm. uh, you know, I'll feel like shit. And I'll be like, you know what? Good. That's good. I got a hangover. Cause I shouldn't be drinking this much. Yeah, that's right. You know, and then it'll put, set me on the right track for a while until of course I get one again. Yeah. I wake up the next morning. I'm like, this is terrible. I don't need to do this. (laughs) Well, and that's what I learned from aging. I mean, like before like COVID, I I would go out and maybe have two or three drinks, but I might have three or four cigarettes. And the next day I'm like feeling awful. And I'm like, I can have three drinks fine without feeling bad. (laughs) But the cigarettes, the dehydration from both, you know, substances and you're just feeling wrecked the next yeah. day because like I and sadly my body is handling you know half a pack a day these days you know but and it, and it's so it's so relative because you know half a pack now I mean I remember my grandpa Barney he was four packs a day camels yeah and that was just like oh yeah he's a heavy smoker because I only smoke two packs a day you know in the 1980s right <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like yeah. I mean, People I went would to, buy uh, two packs a day. They would just go to the store and just be like, I need my two packs. <laughs> I mean, I went to Manhattanville College in New York and I was from Atlanta and I would, uh, I always kept my car registered back in Georgia, which meant back in those days in the nineties, like those, those states weren't linked up. So I, I could get a speeding ticket in New York and it wouldn't show up on my license because my license was Georgia and the car is registered in Georgia. But so, I, I mean, I'm, I'm in college for like, you know, four to five years, you know, in New York. And, and I would drive back and visit family and, you know, get my car registered every year. And so that 14 hour road trip from Atlanta to New York, I'd pack, I'd smoke maybe three packs of cigarettes on that drive. That meant 60 cigarette butts are going out the window, littering the highway in the <laughs> mid nineties. I feel utterly ashamed to admit that, but like 60 cigarettes are littering the highway between Atlanta and New York, you know, and that, that, that 14 hour drive. And um, I mean, I couldn't do anything like that today. I mean, like yeah. I might have like a stressful day and go out on the back porch and have a drink after the kids are asleep and I put them both to bed and maybe have like three or four cigarettes and still feel pretty crappy, you know, like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, the, the cigarette box out the window. You said it used to be such a thing. You'd just be on the freeway, just see it, just see it go. <laughs> just how else are you going to get, you know, what is it, 1995? 
how else are you going to get rid of a cigarette butt? Uh, I'm going to keep it up in my car. That would smell gross. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And at the time, I was like, a, like an asshole about it. I would just joke, like, well, birds will pick them up and help build their nest, you know? And like, exactly. And I, re- I, I, re- I sincerely regret that. And uh, I feel bad about that environmental destruction. Oh, but like, the stuff we did, I, me and drunk driving. I mean, <laughs> Back in, you know, back in the 90s, there were times I like, you know, drove home from clubs in San Francisco to the suburbs or whatever, mm. where I'd just be like, oh, yeah, that was just, but, you know, at the time I was just like, oh, I've only had four beers. I'm fine. And now I'm just like, yeah. oh, my God, I'm lucky I got out alive. I didn't kill anybody. Yeah. <laughs> it's mind blowing. Yeah. But, you know, you, I mean four drinks isn't that bad if you're you know well, sometimes there was more trust me there sometimes yeah. it was just like it was just like wow i'm home when you wake up you're just like going that you know and back then you're like ah oh, that just wasn't a good idea because you're worried about the the dui not about yeah, the, pretty- the harm yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah uh but it's you know now we're in a different time which i feel is a much better time it is but just but just how how nonchalant we were about it because it's just like oh yeah dude i was blasted like you know you just you talk about it with your friends i was wasted last night i don't know how i got my car home it's you know one wheels up on the curb and then it's like a laugh you're like damn that's rough and then then you just go about your day you know now it's just like dude you got a problem (laughs) well i think i think part of the to make this a little more serious about it is like i think part of youth is we don't have enough panoramic perspective in consciousness you know like the ripple effect of all our actions we don't have that we don't we don't really get a fuller picture as you until you get older and older and older and like i mean i'm 43 now and i'm i'm and i'm pretty content with my age i'm pretty happy and i and, you know, my my children are about to turn four and one's about to turn two and like it was pretty late by the time i had these and like and i'm pretty happy with where i am now having children in that like I was an idiot. I'm probably still an idiot, you know, and I'll, I'll 10 years from now, I'll say I was an idiot back at 43, but you know, the different stages of me being an idiot when I was younger, I'm glad I'm less of the idiot. I was then now and having children and, you know, like just having a bigger picture about how our actions affect others around us, you know, and, and we have so many contemporary arguments about, um, you know, intent verse, you know, um, you know, uh, um, 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 how it turns out, you know, your, your intent versus how people take things, you know, and, and that's extremely important to know that like, yeah, you might've been fine driving home at four drinks or more and you got home, but to know the kind of like expanse around you and the ripple effect of your actions and how people registered things you did and said that you didn't notice. Yeah. I'm, I'm all about getting greater perspective on our lives. And also just, you know, I'm, I'm a hippie dippy when it like comes to energy and the energy of people and just how we interact. And, you know, just, I mean, doing something like that is just, you know, I don't, I don't I'm not too sure about karma, but it's repelling, it's repelling a certain type of energy where you, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's, you know, it's just kind of makes you want to become Catholic and go to confession. <laughs> I mean, 
you can you can confess to anyone in any ways, you know. I mean, yeah. And, and like the basic definition of karma is just action. You know, it's our action yeah. about cause and effect. You know, you could you could take a American later version of Buddhist karma or even other Buddhist versions of karma, but like the most basic definition of karma is just our action. You know, action. Mm-hmm. And so actions have every effect has every causes and effect. You know, and and each effect has other causes from it, you know, and there's ripples out of that. And and just understanding that kind of, you know, everything you do is going to have repercussions in some way or another, you know, and that and some we can't anticipate, you know, and and we can all we can do is just try to be as kind and conscientious and and freaking nice as possible. I mean. And, and, I'll, and I'll bring it to this. One, one of the big movies of my childhood was Roadhouse, starring Patrick Swayze. Oh, yeah. And so... What a bod um, that guy has, huh? And Yeah, exactly. Doing Tai Chi out there in the field. Yeah. Like, when he died, I almost got like an armband tattoo that said, be nice. Because it was, it was his great line as, as like the, the head bouncer, you know, be nice. Yeah. Be nice. And the guy says, well, be nice. You know, well, when do we, you know, if someone calls me a bad name, what do I do? Just be nice. When do I know when it's not time to be nice? You don't until I tell you it's time to be nice. So just be nice. And like, I was a weird loner kid in like 1990 or 89, whenever that movie came out and I saw it in the theater and I was weirdly obsessed with like militaristic stuff and martial arts. And like, I took ninjutsu, I took Taekwondo, I took Shotokan Karate, which, you know, Jean-Claude Van Damme did. I saw Kickboxer in the theater at a sneak preview because I was that much of a fan at like, you know, 10 or 11, 12 years old, whatever that came out. Wow. And like, I was so into that kind of stuff and I spent way too much time alone. I had kind of, you know, divorced dad, single mom, busy working all the time. And these are the things that I was, I was into and doing. And like, you know, Roadhouse is a film where like, Dalton, this character, we don't even know a last name or first name, he's Dalton. He's got a PhD in, no, he's got a BA in philosophy from NYU. Mm-hmm. And so I eventually went to school in New York, he had a BA in philosophy, you know, after watching that film. And I did Tai Chi like him in that film. And like, I'm not someone who is engaged in a lot of violence. You know, I, I've somehow been able to talk my way out of it. And, yeah. and, and but like, I was prepared for a lot of violence because of the, the super toxic masculinity movies of the 80s that were inflicted mm-hmm. upon me you know like yeah. lethal weapon made suicidal tendencies be cool you know like some <laughs> shit like that and so you know roadhouse had this really weird effect on me that like this is the guy and like what he's about was not fighting pretty fought a lot but you know not fighting yeah. and self-control and discipline and tai chi and these kind of things and studying philosophy and like when kelly lynch his doctor asks him when she's you know stitching him up like Oh, you got a BA from philosophy, you know, in philosophy from NYU, which I don't know why that would be in his medical record, but she brings that up. <laughs> and, and she's like, so what did you study? And he's like, man's search for faith, that kind of shit, you know, like, and it's like, you know, a nice hokey moment, you know, but it's, you know, eventually I studied Kierkegaard and man's search for faith and that kind of stuff. And, and what a weird influence of film for like a weird kid that I was, but then ultimately I always look back and be like, what you take away is just be nice, you know, as much as you can until it's time to not be nice. And hopefully those times are fewer and far between, you know. It's what I found interesting with, especially with COVID, you know, I'll see people like acting out sometimes and they're driving, you know, we're in LA or, or act, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll act out in a certain way and you'll see them angry. Mm-hmm. Um, or, and they may be angry at you. 
Mm-hmm. And now that we're in COVID, I just realize people are scared. It's, yeah. it's just, they're just scared. Yeah. And you can't, you yeah. can't, it's just like, they're scared and something may have happened. And it's, mm-hmm. I, I let those things roll off so much easier. I'm just yeah. like, everyone's scared. Yeah. It's just, yeah. and I'll be, I'll have my scared day too when it comes, you know, it's. And, th- and that's the way to, that's the way to empathize. I mean, like for all the Trumpers and anti-maskers and all of these things that have politics and stances thrown on top of them. I mean, basically people are, you know, pretty fucking frightened about how, how, how fucked up the world is with a pandemic that has killed over 500,000 people, you know, yeah. and that, you know, your, your neighbor might, might have it. And, and also like, you don't understand who your neighbor is sometimes, you know, you don't, yeah. you know, we're all just kind of generally like feeling our way around in this world, like a darkness. And, and it's, and it is frightening and, you know, empathy, you know, kindness. That's always what it comes down to. It's, it's great. Yeah. Jordan, thanks for coming on the show. So I wrote a book, you know. (laughs) Jordan A. Rothacker on Drinks with Tony. Check out his new book, The Death of the Cyber Oracle. And I found the name of the book about the Giants and Dodgers rivalry I talked about in the beginning. I actually wrote an article about it for the San Francisco Chronicle like 10 years ago. The book is called The Rivalry Heard Round the World, The The Dodgers-Giants Feud from Coast to Coast. So for anyone living outside the region, I guess it's kind of the equivalent of having like your own footy team in the UK or I'm not sure about that. Was wait, wait if, is having your soccer affiliation in the UK also part of being white collar or working class? I have no clue. Hey, come back next week when I have even less of a clue. I have Jason Novak on the show penciled in on the calendar as a guest. His new book is called Joe Frank Ascent. It's words by Joe Frank, the legendary writer, radio show host, and it's drawings and illustration by Jason. As a Joe Frank super freak and a fan of Jason's work, I hope we pull the interview off in time for air next week. Speaking of air, have you heard it's spring? Yes, spring is in the air. Tony, I love your callbacks. They're impeccable. You're a really funny guy. Thanks, man. I like you too. And I'll see you next week on Drinks with Tony.